Scripture reading this morning is Galatians 1, 6-10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let's pray. Father, this morning as we open the scriptures and we talk about uh, the counterfeit gospels around us and we talk about what it looks like to have a false gospel, I pray you'd open our eyes that we would see in greater ways your love for us in Christ. I pray you'd open our ears that we would hear you. pray that we would have our hearts opened this morning by you that we might receive this, that we might receive correction and training and edification and everything that we need this morning in our lives. I pray we'd receive it from you by your spirit, through your word. Help us today. We are, we are people who want to follow Jesus faithfully and we need your help to do it. We depend on you. We love you. We thank you for the joy of knowing you and being able to gather together like this. Help us as we sit in your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, if you've got the Galatians booklet, you're already knowing what we're doing. Uh, if you don't have that, you're wondering, why are we in the same text that we were in last week? Well, let me tell you. Uh, we went through that last week. Uh, it was short sermon Sunday because of all the things that were going on. Don't worry, I'm going to remedy that today. Um, <laughs> you can laugh. I'm not kidding. So <laughs> less laughter. That's good. Same text because we are taking a number of excursions as we travel through the letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about modern cultural false teaching. So we're taking the text that we looked at last week, we're going to look at it again, look at the false teaching that was happening in Galatia, uh, and then build off of that and talk about a few of the things that we might see in and around us in our lives here in 21st century Vancouver. Um, a false gospel is trying to add anything else to what Jesus has already done for salvation. False gospels adding anything. So here's the formula. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. This is the formula we're going to work with as we go through here. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. So the three that we're going to look at today. Jesus plus my earning. This is where you see yourself as contributing to or somehow meriting the salvation offered by God. Jesus plus my earning. Secondly, Jesus plus my independence. This is where you see yourself as the ultimate authority in your life. Functionally speaking, you are on the throne. Jesus, this is the third one, Jesus plus my identity. This is where you see yourself as the source of your identity formation. This is where you worry more about who you think you are or who you think you need to be to meet the expectations of others around you or who you think would be acceptable in this world. And you define yourself, your, your, your identity, but it's built upon the foundation of self. You self-define what it means to be a human. So you think more about who you need to be than who God says you are in Christ. 
So it's Jesus plus my identity. These are three false gospels we're going to look at, and it's a little bit of a different message. I don't know how it's going to go. So when we look at the text last week, we looked at the problem of the counterfeit gospel. We looked at how Paul was preaching in Galatia. He was making disciples. He was planting churches. He was establishing leadership teams. He was on a mission. He traveled back through all the cities that he went and first preached in, and then he left. And we saw that how after he left, there were others who came in, and they troubled the disciples in Galatia, and they distorted the gospel that Paul had brought them. They're peddling a counterfeit gospel. Verses 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who would trouble you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. So he says that these false teachers have come and they have troubled them. And they have distorted the gospel. And Paul says... Anyone, whether it be us or an angel from heaven, comes to you, preaches a different gospel than we first brought to you, anathema, let them be accursed. Anathema, let them be accursed. So the big question that we need to answer as we look at Galatians 1, 6 to 10, and the big question that that we will see answered more fully as we study the rest of the letter, the big question is, what was the false gospel being taught by these rival teachers? What was the false gospel? Now, since we're only listening in on half of the conversation, we have to do a little bit of reconstruction of what they would have been teaching and what Paul is writing to them is kind of where we can find our half of the conversation that we have. And so we can see the things that he's addressing and we can build up probably what they were teaching. It was in some kind of false, distorted way. So we know that these false teachers, they came into the churches after Paul left and they came to them and told them that salvation comes by Jesus plus keeping some aspects of the Jewish law. Specifically, it was Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus keeping aspects of the Old Testament law. I was taking a a course on Galatians, and I'm sitting in this course on on Galatians, and it's the first day, and uh, the first mention of circumcision happens. It's a big theme in Galatians that we have to deal with, and so we just get used to it. We had to deal with this. And this guy kind of puts his hand up and the professor says yes. And he says, will we be talking more about circumcision? And I was like, you're so eager to talk about this. Like, obviously the guy has not had to preach circumcision texts all the time. This is something that, that I, I, I want to assign to Jake every time there's a text that comes up and it deals with circumcision again. But this is what was happening. Specifically, they were saying that it was Jesus plus circumcision and keeping some aspects of the Old Testament law. He, here's the basic reasoning behind the false teachers. They said, if you see Jesus as Savior and you want to be welcomed into the family of God, there are some things that you're going to need to do to get into the family, and there are some things that you are going to need to do to stay in the family. For a quick verse of scripture on this, look at Acts 15.1 with me for a second. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what we assume is happening here in Galatia. False teachers have come in and they've said, sure, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is the Messiah. But salvation is actually Jesus plus. Salvation is Jesus plus. And so you need to listen to us. 
So the Jewish people are, are the children of Abraham. They see themselves as the children of Abraham. And these Jewish teachers who would have come in to the southern part of Galatia, to the churches that Paul planted and said, there's a Jesus plus gospel that you need to know about. They said, if you want to be part of the family of Abraham, if you want to be part of God's covenant people, then you need to be circumcised. You ever th- thought really only impacts about 50% of you? You ever think about that one? Yeah, it's maybe why I think it's a little more serious. I'm in that, I'm in that 50%. Jesus plus. To them, the entry point into the family of Abraham was circumcision. Uh, this is how you took hold of the promises of Abraham. Now, Paul strongly refutes that later in this letter, and he says that faith in Jesus is actually the entry point into the family of God. And if you want to be part of Abraham's family, then you're part of the people who place their faith in the Messiah that came from Abraham's family, Jesus. That's the entry point into the family of God. And the good news of the gospel is actually how you receive the promises of God for salvation. But even in this, this initial uh, practice of circumcision, they, they just see this as a good beginning. It's the way that you get initiated into the family. But then once you're in the family, you need to do works of the law. You need to be perfected by doing works of the law. And, and to that, Paul says to them, he goes, wait a second, I am a Jew. This is what he says in verse 16 of chapter 2. He says, I am a Jew, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So the Jesus plus gospel that the false teachers had come in with that was distorted saying it's Jesus plus doing something else, Paul says, wrong. No one will be justified by doing works of the law. Now, we're going to talk about that a lot more as we continue our study. He says that there are no works of the law that can be practiced, that you can do whereby you can be saved. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God's justifying work is accomplished for us in what Jesus has done. And when we place our faith in Jesus, it's, it's, think of it like this, the final judgment day, the day where you stand before God for your eternal destiny to be judged. It's like bringing that into the present moment when you place your faith in Jesus and being declared justified, forgiven. You stand right before God in the immediate sense right in that moment, not, not at the end of the days, but now. It's the last judgment that will ever be passed on your eternal destiny. There's other things that are going to be looked at, but not that. And it does not come through doing certain works of the law. It comes by grace through faith in Christ. The New Testament teaches us that if we could have been made right with God by doing works of the law... And if we could have earned a right standing before God through our own doing of the works of the law, then we wouldn't have needed Jesus. That's why Jesus had to come. Now, here's the thing for us. Paul is not just down on being told salvation comes through Jesus plus doing works of the law. I think Paul's point is our salvation doesn't come through Jesus plus us doing anything. 
a theologian who I, I deeply respect. His name's Douglas Moo. He says the problem with human doing is that it always it is always necessarily. Let me start that sentence over again. The problem with human doing is that it is always and necessarily inadequate. Sinful humans are incapable of rendering to God the obedience that God deserves. Works of the law, like any other human work, always fall short of what God expects. So this means that the only way for us to have a right relationship with God and the only way to be included in his family and the only way for us to stay in his family is to deny any merit of our own and to stop the desire to earn, turn from that, repent of that, and actually simply receive what Christ has already accomplished and we receive that by faith. He has accomplished something in your place that you receive. We display our salvation We show our faith by the works that we give ourselves to after, but we don't count on those works to earn a salvation. It's an important distinction to the fact that we are talking about salvation. Our salvation is never gained through Jesus plus anything. Whatever that would be. It's not Jesus plus being a good person. It's not Jesus plus doing more good works than your neighbor. It's not Jesus plus specific works of Old Testament law that keep you saved. It's not Jesus plus any kind of meritorious accomplishments on your own. It is not Jesus plus any kind of earning that you do. Our salvation is not Jesus plus anything. And Paul's writing to the Galatians to tell them that Jesus plus anything is nothing. It's subtraction by addition. Right? You try to add something to the work of Christ and you lose. Nothing on top of what Christ has already accomplished is necessary. If you add anything to it as a requirement of salvation, you get nothing. In fact, Paul says you've fallen away. Galatians 5.4, Paul says you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. I'm talking about the entry point into the Christian family. Jesus plus Anything is nothing. There is nothing you need to add to the work of Christ. So ask yourself this question. How am I accepted into God's family, the church? See, to the Jewish false teachers that Paul's writing against here, they said it was Jesus plus circumcision and keeping some works of the law, doing some things. Uh, to the Roman world that the Galatians were a part of, to the Roman rulers and authorities, it was Jesus plus offering a pinch of incense to Caesar. Go to the altar of Caesar and worship a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you can have Jesus, but you're going to need to take Caesar too. Jesus plus. To the broader culture in Vancouver, it's basically Jesus plus inclusivity and affirmation of everything and everyone. Yeah, yeah, you can be a Christian, but you're going to need to affirm all of the things that we declare you need to affirm. So you can can have Jesus plus some beliefs that we give you, then, then you'll be accepted. If you look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? 
If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is what happens if you don't know that you've been accepted and approved by God. If your vertical connection to God has not been established in that sense where you know that you are affirmed, that you are accepted, that you are loved, that you have been approved by God. If you don't have that, what happens is you start looking horizontal for it. And you start looking to the Jewish Christian leaders who are saying that it's Jesus plus. And you start looking to the Roman authorities who say that it's Jesus plus. And you start looking to the people you work with going, well, well, I don't know that I have that approval from God, but I'm really looking for it horizontally. And so you start listening to people who say that it's Jesus plus. That's a false gospel that we can't believe. We need to, we need to be clear about that. How about being accepted in your workplace? Um, it might be like my girls. Uh, I'm, I'm quite accepted in my workplace for my faith. I don't know if you know that. Um, I, I have done other things before, vocationally, before ministry. Uh, it, it could be like my kids in, in their school. They're talking about Jesus with their classmates, and they come over and go, shh. The teachers, who are the authority figure in the school, say, you're not allowed to do that here. Um, so to be accepted as a Christian in the school, in their classroom, it's Jesus plus keeping it to yourself. That might be some of your workplaces. Yeah, I don't care what you do on Sundays, but just keep that to yourself. Are you looking for the approval of man? Maybe it feels like acceptance in Vancouver is Jesus plus accepting whatever the prevailing cultural attitude is on gender and sexuality. It's a current litmus test for if you are a loving person. Whose approval are you living for? Jesus plus holding a view that Jesus is just an example and that he blesses whatever you think is right. Oh, Jesus, great teacher, great example. If that's the Jesus you're talking about, I'm good with it. But if you're one of those fanatical Christians who think that he actually died and accomplished redemption and rose from the grave, then you're going to need to maybe take a step back on that one. We like Jesus as example, but we don't like him as Lord. What about being accepted as part of the church, part of Christ City Church? We need to be critiqued on this too. It's not just outward critique. We need to do inward critique. What, how are we handling this? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Are we adding anything to the salvation that is offered in Christ to make people feel accepted here? Sometimes I know that it might feel like it's Jesus and having all the right doctrine. Jesus and having a certain view of global missions. Jesus and having a certain view of, you fill in the blank on that. What, what about Jesus plus Western culture, where you need to be assimilated into Canadian culture before you can feel at home in our church? That's a terrible thing for us to project onto anybody. Please forgive us if we do that or any of the other things I'm about to list. Jesus plus everybody looking and dressing and sounding like you. Conform to who we are as a church and then you'll be accepted. No, 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 you're accepted because you are the beloved of the Father. You're accepted because of the work of Christ. It's not Jesus plus anything. Relationally, how about relationally in the church? Is it Jesus plus having a family that makes you feel welcomed? Because I know that we don't do a good job welcoming some single people around here sometimes. Is it Jesus plus having it all together? Showing up on a Sunday looking right? smile, everything's good, brother, sister, thank you very much? Or is there room here to be a disastrous mess? Jesus plus having it all together is not a qualification to be accepted in the church. 
There's no plus. You come in how you are. It's okay to not be okay. God's going to bring you through that. Jesus plus homeschooling. Jesus plus public schooling because we're missional. Jesus plus private Christian schooling because we really love our kids, don't you? Which one? Are you going to fight over that? Is it Jesus plus or is that open-handed? Jesus plus recycling and driving an electric car. Like me. (laughs) Jesus plus drinking craft beer. Or Jesus plus teetotaling and not drinking at all. Which one is it for you? Jesus plus essential oils. Which I think are weird. (laughs) They smell nice. Jesus plus having a nice beard and dark rimmed glasses and blundstone boots. You know, that was, somebody came and joked with us that that was a staff uniform. Okay. Well, you don't need to add it to be accepted here. Well, if we're honest, these are all things that we can at times project as a local church, as a group of believers. Here's the thing. I, I hope something on that list offended you. It's my hope. I... I think Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, and so I'm trying to offend all of you, not <laughs> some of you. Anything you add to Jesus, any plus that you put after Jesus, it is offensive to what he's done. It's offensive to who he is. Jesus is an equal opportunity offender, and if you have not been offended by the exclusivity of Christ for salvation lately, If it seems like Jesus always agrees with your social agenda, if it seems like Jesus always affirms your lifestyle choices, if it seems like Jesus is always in agreement with your political ideologies, you have probably domesticated Jesus in some way. There's nothing you can add to your salvation but the sin that made it necessary. Try to find that quote from Jonathan Edwards. It's purported to have been said by Jonathan Edwards. It turns out it's not in any of his writing. So I think I was actually the first one that said it. (laughs) Probably. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You got to hang on to that. Jesus plus my earning. We don't get to earn a right stand. What about Jesus plus my independence? This is where you see yourself as the ultimate authority in your life. So the question is, who is the Lord of your life? Now, if you're a follower of Jesus here, you're going, well, Jesus is the Lord of my life. Awesome. Who is functionally on the throne? Who is functionally seated upon the throne of the sovereign universe that is your life? Is it Christ or... or someone or something else up there. It comes down to who is in authority. This conversation goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Satan approaches Eve and he asks her this awful question. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he says, did God actually say? This is the fundamental question that we have to reckon with here. Underneath every story of somebody walking away from God or somebody rejecting the faith is the question, did God actually say? 
Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. It's the first place in the Bible where God's authority is rejected in favor of personal, individual, autonomous human authority. It was the first humans exerting their independence from God. This is where Adam and Eve decided they were actually the independent ultimate authority of their life. Who is Lord of your life, Adam? Oh, God who I walk with in the cool of the garden. Hmm. God, the creator who formed me from the dust of the earth is the Lord of my life. Yeah, yeah, but who's on the throne when you're declaring your independence from him? Here's the false gospel, that you can have Jesus and your independence. There is nowhere in the Bible where you get to have Jesus and remain on the throne of your own life. Boy, do 21st century Vancouverites ever hate to hear that. You've been told since you were a little kid. doesn't matter even if you're really old. You've probably been told this since you were a little kid. This has been happening a long time in our Western culture. You are special and unique and wonderful. Actually, that's just not true. If I'm the first person to tell you that, I'm really sorry. You need God to save you. It's not because of how wonderful you are. You're probably wonderful, and it's good that your mom and your dad loved you. But that's actually a false gospel, that you can serve Jesus and maintain your independence in life. It's this false notion of the sovereign self. I am not Lord of my life. Remember the phrase, if you've been around here for a while, you've heard me say this, and sometimes I make you repeat it, and I'm not going to. Well, maybe I will. God is God, and I'm not. It's a really important thing to look in the mirror and say once in a while. There's two ways that I think this works itself out in our world today. There's lots more. I'm going to give you two. One in the broader culture of our city, and then one uh, here in the church. First in the city, what we would call this Jesus plus my independence, I think it works itself out in a, in a religious system in what we would call religious pluralism. Think of the coexist bumper sticker, right? Everyone just getting along real well because we're all just pointing to the same Jesus. We're all pointing to the same God. It's all one God, many paths to God. Well, that's an interesting thought. It doesn't hold up well when you talk to all of those individual different religious worldviews. There's actually a spiritual center on Oak Street that has really leaned into this. They're called Unity of Vancouver. Um, I'd love to see Jesus just break in there and save some people because this is a bunch of false gospel nonsense. Here's here's what it's... uh, Their logo is basically, it's um, the Islamic star and crescent. It's the yin and yang of, of Chinese or Eastern 
philosophy. Uh, it's an image of Buddha. It's the star of David. It's a Hindu symbol, Om. It's the khanda of Sikhism, and it's a local native spiritual symbol and a cross. And their, their motto is one God, many paths. So this is religious pluralism. Now, I know I'm talking about Jesus plus my independence, and here's why. Um, those faiths on there are basically all mutually exclusive. And the only way that you can blend them together and pick and choose which bits are meaningful to you and which bits will actually be uh, helpful for your life and guide you in the right direction, the only way you can do that is if you are the center authority, if you're the central authority figure in your life. So you go, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of Buddha. I'm going to take a little bit of Hinduism, right? Because I like my yoga. All you yoga nuts. God's quiet in here. I'm going, to, I'm, going to take, I'm going to take a little bit of, of some of the Sikhism, because there's some nice stuff in that. Even the native spirituality, there's some things there we can embrace. You become the arbiter of truth. It is a subjective selection of truth that you take and a subjective rejection of truth that you don't want. And it's religious pluralism. It has everything to do with the independence of the human. I've called this in the past supernatural syncretism. Syncretism is when you blend together a couple of different things in an attempt to form a different end product. And I'm convinced it is the most popular kind of spirituality in Vancouver. Supernatural syncretism. Here's how it works. You are the ultimate authority. You walk up to the buffet table of religious, philosophical, and political worldviews, and you take your plate, and you as the sovereign lord of your life choose which bits of different world religion and historical ideologies and political influences and philosophical thoughts, and you take those and you add them and you assemble for yourself your perfect religious experience, your perfect spirituality. And then because dope's going to be legal soon in like a month, you add a little bit of weed to that, maybe some psychedelic trips and psilocybin and other... I can tell you more about those later if you don't know what that's about. I didn't get saved until I was almost 20, right? And you add all of those things in there for spiritual experiences. You are the central authority of your spiritual life. You as the independent authority decide what you will receive and what you will reject. Uh, It's a belief in God that rejects the claims of Scripture, and it allows the individual to be the one who defines their reality. I think it is the most prevalent false gospel in the city on a larger structure level. That's the first way Jesus and independence works itself out. Here's the second. It's actually in the church. Um, This is easy to see from front to back in the Bible. God's people tend to learn slow, just like me. Okay, You've got people who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them, from him. And we can all be guilty of this at times. Um, We are people who talk about the authority of God. We elevate the authority of Scripture in our lives. We want to try and live faithfully under the Scriptures. But when push comes to shove, sometimes we choose self. And that's why God has invited us to repent of our sin. Oh, that's the good news. Because we're slow to learn and we desperately need an opportunity to say, Oh, that was such a selfish choice. That was me clamoring for my independence in this world. This is what happens every time you hear somebody say, oh, just follow your heart. Basically what that means is I know what the Bible says, uh, but I'm totally okay with ignoring it, and you should be too. Follow your heart. If, you're, if, if you want to do horrible things, please don't follow your heart. 
But even if you just want to make decisions, following your heart's a really bad way to go about making decisions. Never give up on your dreams. Sometimes that's code for not your will, Lord, but mine be done. Um, I, I grew up playing hockey and um, had to quit when I was 17 because I had five concussions, which explains a lot about me. And there's this younger guy that I was discipling, and he was a hockey player, and he had this family in the church just pumping his tires all the time about how good he was. And um, they're quoting like Philippians 4, was it 13? Like, you can do all things through Christ. Like, he's, he's like, I want to play in the NHL. It's my dream. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm like, well, that's not exactly what that means. So he says, would you come watch a game and tell me how I'm doing? And I said, sure, man, I'd love to come watch a game. And I knew the level he was playing meant that he was not going to be in the NHL. But I went and watched his game. And after the game, I said, I think you should go to university. You're not going to be an NHL hockey player. And he was devastated. They told me I should follow my dreams, that I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm like, they lied to you. You're not good enough to play in the NHL. He's doing just great now, just so you know. He's a great young guy. He's doing fine. He's got a bunch of kids. He's got like a job and everything. It's great. <laughs> just follow your dreams. That's code for my will, not yours. It can be. These things fall into the category of self-actualization. Um, how about this? Anything is permissible as long as it's not hurting anyone else. How about God just wants you to be comfortable? I don't know if you'd square that away with Jesus on the cross. God just wants you to be free of suffering. I don't know if you'd square that away with the entire Old Testament, New Testament, and history of the church. How about God just wants you to be happy? So do whatever you want. Well, God does want you to be happy, but he wants you to be happy in him, which is an ultimate happiness, not happy in yourself, which is probably going to lead to death. I told you it'd be a different kind of sermon. This stuff's great on, um, on greeting cards and coffee mugs and stuff like that. That stuff uh, sells a lot, of, a lot of swag in that way. Underneath it is the devious sin of elevating yourself over God. Greg Bonson said, To become a Christian, one submits to the lordship of Christ. He renounces autonomy or independence and comes under the authority of God's Son. Jesus plus my independence is a false gospel. What about the third one? Jesus plus my identity. This is the one where you see yourself as the source of your identity formation. This is the individual as self-defining. You define what it means to be human. This is when you worry more about who you think you need to be than who God says you are in Christ. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard is a dead Danish philosopher, this is what he said. He, he, he said, where am I? Who am I? How did I come to be here? What is this thing called the world? How did I come into the world? Why was I not consulted? And if I'm compelled to take part in it, where's the director? I want to meet him. We all fight and wrestle with who am I kind of questions. Who, who are we? If I wanted to say it in a different way, though, rather than saying, who am I? I could say, what defines me? What defines me? We live in a, a really free society in that way where we are free more than ever to define ourself. Like I went to the grade eight orientation at my daughter's high school and that is the message. 
You need to be who you are and you need to bring definition to that. And nobody else has the right to put constraints on you and tell you what it means to be human. How's that working for you? It's how I lived until I came to Christ. It didn't work very well. So we live with a bit of tyranny of choice type idea. There's so many options, so many things, so much what so-called freedom. Who I am and who am I becomes a burden rather than an exploration. So rather than asking that, let's say what defines you. Um, here's what this false gospel looks like, I think. Jesus plus my identity. I'm talking about your self-defined secondary and tertiary identities. If you begin with self, and feel like you need to define your existence, then that means you're starting from scratch and you're not part of any larger story of what it means to be human. So you're rejecting that meta-narrative of what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus, what it means to be in the family of God. You're rejecting the creation narrative that's going to draw you into seeing what it means to be human as defined by God in the scriptures. So if you reject all stories that have come before you and you say, I and I alone have to bring definition to what it means to be human, you're the definer of truth and the self is the center. This is, again, I think a prevalent false teaching, false gospel in our generation and in our city. It can come into the church where you say, I, I have Jesus, but I define everything else about me. And if that's the case, then what ends up happening is you as an individual define what your ideal heaven looks like, what your functional heaven looks like, and then you need to find a functional savior to get you there. So here's how it works. If, if you're really wrapped up in uh, your job title, your financial success, uh, your vocational success, if you're really wrapped up in materialistic pursuits and you really, really care, like the kind of house that you have, the kind of car that you drive... And that becomes a functional heaven. Like one day when I get a fill in the blank, I will be happy. Right? If you say that, like one day when I drive a blank, I'll be happy. That blank becomes your functional savior to get you to your functional heaven. That's a self-identity thing that we do. So we define what would be heavenly and then we find a savior to get us there. The question I think that we can ask ourselves, what are we willing to sacrifice for? That's probably a functional heaven, a self-defining reality for us. I'm willing to sacrifice for certain things. Um, what if your identity is in your physical beauty? What if your identity is not just in your physical beauty, but the attention that you get from the opposite sex? When I get their attention, I will feel fulfilled. Well, what, what are you willing to do to get their attention? Will you change the way you dress? Will you dress in a more provocative way to get the attention that you need to have your identity filled, fulfilled? Will you take steroids to get the kind of muscles that you need to gain the attention from the opposite sex so that you can feel like you've achieved something and arrived? Is it, is it something you give yourself to? So it's Jesus plus being attractive and getting noticed. How about this one? This is happening here in the church. Um, when your secondary identity is being a faithful follower of Jesus. Now, nobody's going to disagree with that as a great thing. But here's what I mean. It could mean that you've got a Jesus plus identity when the plus is based on your performance as a Christian. So if you stay on top of your Bible reading plan and you spend a certain amount of minutes a day reading 
you know, the, the scriptures and in prayer and you're, you know, you volunteer extraordinaire and you're generous with your resources and your time and everything that you have and you check all of those things off and you go, I am good. That's dangerous. If your outer moral life conforms to what you would see patterned in Scripture as the proper moral kind of life for a Christian, and you, and you check that box, it's Jesus plus my performance. So it's the bad things you don't do, right? And the good things that you do. What ends up happening is you subtly shift your confidence off of Jesus to save you, and you shift your confidence onto the performance that you bring to it. That's a Jesus plus identity that Christians need to be aware of. All of those things are good. You should do all of those things. But not so that you can feel secure in God's love. If you've got a Jesus plus identity, these are absolutely essential, self-defining realities. Here's what ends up happening. You start to serve that thing rather than serving God. These secondary identity features, they can actually take over. And here's one way that you can look for them in your life. This is what Tim Keller said. He said, they are anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Okay, but, but, something totally different happens when you remove the self from the center of your personal identity and instead of starting with self-definition, you start with who God says you are in Christ. It's a totally different game. So let me speak some things over you today. In Christ, you are chosen from the foundations of the earth. You are redeemed from slavery to sin and you receive freedom in Christ. You are ransomed from the wages of sin and death and you are given new life in Christ. You once were dead in your sin and trespasses, but now you are alive in Christ. In Christ, you are a new creation. You are the beloved of the Father. You are the child of God. You've been adopted as his own. You are eternally secure because Jesus accepts and keeps all who come to him. See, in Christ, you are justified. You are made clean. You are made whole and you are being made whole. In Christ, you are forgiven. And it's so powerful because in Christ, you can forgive others. In Christ, you are not alone, but you are now a citizen of heaven. In Christ, you are now a member of the new family of God. If you start with self, all of that stuff gets lost. But if you start with who God says you are in Christ, you can add all of those other things in and they don't become Jesus plus identities. They're all fine but you don't look to them as an ultimate source of defining who you are. Tim Keller said again, to quote him, the point of the book of Galatians is you think you know the gospel and you don't. You think you apply the gospel and you don't. You think you understand the gospel and have worked it into your heart, but you don't. It's Tim Keller as a buzzkill. Oh, but it's Tim Keller with some truth. Just when you think you've achieved full knowledge of the gospel, God will reveal to you that you don't have it. Jesus plus my earning. This sees the self 
as earner of salvation. Jesus plus my independence sees the self as the ultimate functional authority. Jesus plus my identity is the individual as self-defining. But Christ City, we've got better news than that. All three of the Jesus plus descriptors, they have this thing in common, and it's the sense the self is center. It's the thread that runs all the way through all of them. Every person has a throne in their life, and for Christians, that's where Jesus sits. But every false gospel, what it does is it dethrones Jesus, and it enthrones someone else or something else. So if I'm the self-definer of who I am, and I'm the source of my own identity, and I am the one who really sits on the throne, it's evident because who I say I am trumps who God says I am in Christ. See, if I need to earn my salvation... It's really me who sits on the throne because I have earned my spot there. If I need to have independent, ultimate authority in my life, it's me who is on the throne. I am the arbiter of truth, and it is my will that I follow. But Christ City, we have better news than that. See, your salvation is really actually by works. It's just not by your works. Your salvation is earned It's not earned by you. Jesus earns through Jesus' works, and I receive. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Would you stand as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.